ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, 22,000 Australians lost a job last month, so is rising unemployment the bitter medicine that can bring inflation under control? We take a look at the latest efforts to tackle the housing crisis. Is taxing short-term rentals going to help? Also, as extreme weather events grow in frequency, the number of emergency workers is steadily on the decline. What can be done to ensure the nation has the helping hands it needs? It's very hard to get young people involved because it's so hard for them these days. But, you know, young people got to realise it helps them in their careers. It's good on their resumes for jobs and they have so many good skills. Those stories in a moment. But first, Canberra is often a cynical place, but today even the hardest of hearts took a moment to take in some good news. She said yes. That was the three-word announcement from the Prime Minister this morning, announcing his engagement to his partner Jody Hayden. They haven't set a date, but if he's still in office when they wed, it would be the first time in Australian history that a sitting Prime Minister has tied the knot. Rachel Mealy reports. It's not usually a feature of a sitting week in Canberra, but today Anthony Albanese put love on the front page. It is uh, such a joy uh, to be able to share this news with people and it's wonderful that I've found a partner uh, who I want to spend the rest of my life with and last night was a very uh, a great occasion uh, here uh, at the Lodge and we couldn't be more happy. The Prime Minister and his fiancée Jodie Hayden fronted the cameras this afternoon in Canberra. And I just want to thank everybody for such warm congratulations today from our friends to our family, uh, from people that we don't know. It's just been overwhelming but beautiful. Yeah, thank you for all the warm and generous messages we've received. One of those warm and generous messages was from the opposition leader Peter Dutton, who rose in Parliament to congratulate the Prime Minister. Perhaps uh, just on indulgence first, can I extend uh, to the Prime Minister and to Jodie, I'm sure on behalf of the whole House. Our congratulations and best wishes to you. Uh, we look forward to our version of the Royal Wedding sometime uh, in the near future. Uh, I... Uh, I'll be there throwing roses out uh, in front of your Prime Minister, whatever it uh, whatever it takes to get an invite to the gala wedding. The Prime Minister first announced the news this morning on social media. It featured a photo of the smiling couple with a sizeable diamond ring on Jodie Hayden's finger. There's no news yet on when and where the nuptials might be. Look, we uh, we're living twenty four hours. <laughs> we're living in the moment. I put uh, a lot of planning and thought. Uh, went into everything from the, the date, obviously, Valentine's Day, and the, uh, the ring that uh, I, I helped to design, uh, and uh, where to do it. Uh, we did it uh, on, I asked on the balcony, uh, or one of the balconies uh, here at the lodge, 
Uh, we'll now have uh, those discussions between us, which I think people would understand. <laughs> Anthony Albanese and Jodie Hayden met at a business dinner in 2019 and bonded over their shared love of the South Sydney Rabbitohs NRL team. He was the opposition leader and they cemented their relationship during the lockdowns of 2020, away from the spotlight. Since he's been Prime Minister, Jodie Hayden has accompanied him on a number of formal state occasions, such as the coronation of King Charles and, notably, a state dinner at the White House with Joe and Jill Biden. I must say I only have one regret about tonight, which is I'm not quite sure how I topped this for date night with Jodie at any time, anywhere in the future. Journalist Malcolm Farr says Anthony Albanese will benefit from the good news story, but he won't be able to push it too far. I think that if there's any political capital in this for him, it's happened now. If he started, uh, if he started uh, rubbing it in, uh, I think people would start to be uh, terribly uh, uh, sceptical about, uh, about things and certainly would during an election campaign. So if we were to see a ceremony at Kirribilli House, the gloss might wear off a little? Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, duck away down to a registry office in Marrickville. Just have a nice uh, uh, civil ceremony with a, 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 a respectable celebrant and then get back to work. Mark Kenny is a professor at the Australian Studies Institute at ANU. He says in the war for public opinion, an engagement of a Prime Minister is hard to beat. I imagine there are probably a few in the in the Liberal Party, a few hardheads who were... Uh, who thought, oh, great, you know, that's going to play well for them in the Dunkley, that is, for the government in the Dunkley by-election. So, you know, people in Canberra, they do tend to be a bit, um, at least in the political class, can be pretty cynical, and there'll be some who probably look at that and uh, think, yes, it's going to give the PM an extra bounce, puts a bit of a human side on the PM and uh, won't do him any harm at all. But not everyone is getting carried away with the happy news, with the engagement bringing a mixed response on the streets of Melbourne. No, I don't care. I have no interest. <laughs> now that you've told me, I think, well, good for him. Why not? Would you prefer to have a married Prime Minister or it doesn't no, worry you? No, not at all. That doesn't, I'm not fussed about that. It's more his personal decision. Timing impeccable to get some good ratings when things are pretty doom and gloom here. Best of luck on his engagement and hope it's uh, married for many, many, many years. <laughs> Indeed. All those cynics on the streets. <laughs> Rachel Mealy with that report. Well, now on to more sobering matters. And we are being told it's going to be harder to land a job over the next six months as the economy slows. Official data today showed the unemployment rate bouncing up to a two-year high of 4.1% as 22,000 people lost work in January. The Treasurer says this is an inevitable consequence of rising interest rates and a slowing economy. The necessary pain, if you like, needed to bring inflation under control. But as David Taylor asks, what of the risks that this economic medicine actually won't provide a cure and will be left with fewer jobs and still elevated inflation? The jobs market has turned and economists say it's getting harder to land work. Yeah, look, I absolutely think the jobs market is slowing right down. That's Creditor Watch's chief economist, Annika Thompson. The firm monitors business activity month to month by looking at the total value of all invoices made by firms. Based on that data, she says, it looks like businesses are doing less and simply don't need extra staff as much. 
you know, we have this business risk index data and we, um, you know, monitor activity of businesses basically in real time. So we get the data as it's happening and we can see a significant slowdown um, in business activity. And then there's other indicators like, you know, NAB's business sentiment survey, which so the businesses, business conditions are um, falling um, and business confidence has been quite low for some time. So, I think that all those signs tell us that that businesses are expecting, you know, much weaker conditions, at least for the first six months of this year. And global recruitment firm Robert Half tells us if companies do have projects, they're opting to hire workers on a temporary or contract basis rather than creating a new position. Here's director Nicole Gorton. Absolutely, but they're also looking at existing staff in terms of do we need to make that hire and making sure that they're adding to their headcount, then we're just make, making sure that it is actually a, a business, um, it makes business sense and we're doing it right at the time that we need to make that hire. And also how they're promoting within as well to then backfill roles below that and that promotion level helps retention as we know. So I think companies are still hiring but then they're just working out at what point do we do that and do we get a contractor in for a period of time? Because it might be that, that that workload or that project is actually we get through it and we don't actually need a permanent headcount. Analysts report activity is slowing in construction, the renovation sector, retail trade, as well as cafes and restaurants. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says it's all an inevitable consequence of rising interest rates. And persistent inflation and global economic uncertainty. Uh, because of uh, the pressures that people are under, the pressures our economy is under and indeed the global economy as well. It's clear higher interest rates are slowing demand in the economy, which is leading to less hiring and job losses. But what about winning the bigger prize of reducing inflation, especially to the point where interest rates might be cut? ANZ economist Catherine Birch. The question is how quickly... Will the labour market loosen? Will unemployment and underemployment rise through this year? And how quickly those factors rise um, will be an influence on the RBA's monetary policy setting. Is there a risk that inflation stays elevated and the unemployment rate keeps rising? There is a risk. There are some shifts happening in the labour market. We are seeing sort of hours worked come off. It's harder to find a full-time job than it was, for example, because employers are looking at sort of managing their their labour costs and that sort of thing too. But, you know, if we are starting to see the labour market deteriorating quite rapidly, um, then I think that you're more likely to see the RBA step in. At the same time, the Reserve Bank has repeatedly said it won't cut interest rates until it's confident inflation is heading back to the target band of between 2 and 3%. David Taylor there. As the housing crisis deepens around the nation, many states are turning their attention to the short-term rental market as they search for ways to improve housing affordability. And New South Wales is today the latest state to float a new tax on holiday homes in the hope of coaxing property owners to convert their investments into long-term rental accommodation. Alison Shaw reports. This woman and her family of four moved to Brisbane 10 days ago from Saudi Arabia. They've spent today inspecting properties. The inspection was good, but the orientation of the house, for us, it was a bit small. I think we've been to more than 10 places till now. 
Many of them were already cancelled before we got to inspect them because they were booked or taken by other people. Some of them we went to, some we didn't like, and um, most of them are really costly. We have a system which has been designed to be fair to the baby boomers, and we have priced out the, um, the working age generation. We've just priced them out of access to the Australian property market. As ordinary Australians struggle with the task of keeping a roof over their heads, there are calls for federal interventions to drive rental prices down. Former Treasury Secretary Ken Henry says tax reform in housing is sorely needed. We have to talk about negative gearing. We have to talk about the capital gains tax concession. We have to get serious about that. We have to think about the way the capital income uh, is taxed and the way the capital deductions are allowed in our system. But as rental housing becomes more and more unaffordable, there's also a growing push among state governments and local councils to try to transition property investors out of short-term rental accommodations and into long-term arrangements. In Western Australia, homeowners will be offered a $10,000 incentive to remove their properties from Airbnb-type websites and will have to apply for council approval to offer short-stay accommodation for more than 90 nights a year. Last year, the Victorian government announced it would introduce a 7.5% tax on short-stay accommodation from 2025 and use the money raised to fund social and affordable housing. Today, the New South Wales government says it wants to start that discussion too. We are going to put absolutely every aspect of the current dysfunction under the microscope. Housing Minister Rose Jackson today launched a discussion paper focused on short-term accommodation. Proposals include introducing new levies on short-term rentals and tightening the cap on the maximum number of nights a short-stay rental can be listed. The idea is that when you have that limit so low, people go, oh, forget it. You know, it, it's such a low limit. I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to have it on the long-term rental market. Professor Nicole Gurren is an urban and regional planning expert at the University of Sydney. She says the evidence is not clear on whether levies and fees on short-term rentals will actually release properties back into the long-term rental market. That's because we don't have great data on the range of people who are owning and operating short-term rentals. Most of the international sort of regulations and policies that are geared towards preserving permanent rental housing stock have had less success in turning returning properties back to the long-term rental market, if you like, and are probably most likely to be successful in preserving existing rental stock and making sure that when we build new homes and apartments, they're not immediately absorbed onto a potentially more lucrative holiday rental market. She says it's important for governments around the country to be looking at short-term stays. It's absolutely true that even if we prevented um, short-term rentals in their entirety, unfortunately, we wouldn't fix Australia's housing problems. But while our only other policy tool seems to be saying we need to increase housing supply in Australia, it doesn't make any sense 
not to look at the role of things like the short-term rental, rental sector and its relationship to the availability of rental properties on the market. That's Professor Nicole Gurren from the University of Sydney, ending that report from Alison Shaw. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson. Coming up, we visit one of the crucial electorates in Tasmania's upcoming state election with the cost of living set to dominate. Australia has joined Canada and New Zealand in sharing its grave concern at Israel's plans for a ground offensive into the Gazan city of Rafah, where over one and a half million Palestinians have sought refuge from the ongoing conflict. The joint statement released this afternoon says a military incursion there would be, quote, catastrophic and urges the Israeli government in clear and direct terms not to go down this path. It comes as a group of aid agencies, including Save the Children, issued its own joint statement about looming famine amongst the civilian population in Gaza. Jason Lee is country director for Save the Children in the occupied Palestinian territory, and I spoke to him from Ramallah. Jason Lee, thanks for being with us. What's your response, firstly, to this prime ministerial statement from Australia, Canada and New Zealand? I think it's a step in the right direction, and I'm proud that Australia is taking the legal and moral ethical leadership to actually call for not only the ceasefire, but the restoration of humanitarian access. However, it is not enough. There is not enough time. Right now, children in Gaza, there's an estimated 1.1 million children in Gaza that are facing starvation. With the imminent attacks or escalations in Rafah, we will see the 1.3 million people living there pushed further into areas that cannot accommodate them. We have 85% of the population that are displaced. Mums and dads, kids have fled their homes. They've got nowhere to live. They're living in tents. They're living in the open. There is no toilets. Um, civilians have taken to open defecation. There's no food, no mm. water. And they're being told yet to move again but there is nowhere, absolutely nowhere for them to move to. Indeed, Save the Children is one of the signatories of of a statement yourselves, a statement on conflict-induced hunger in Gaza. How serious is the risk of famine, a genuine famine in Gaza now? I mean, the latest report or study that was done, the Integrated Food Security Study at the end of last year, indicated that every single person in Gaza is food insecure which means that they do not know when the next meal is coming from. With the lack of supplies in Gaza, the fact that we've not been able to bring in enough humanitarian supplies and goods, with the fact that there's been the total collapse of the commercial sector, the risk of famine and malnutrition, particularly amongst young kids, is incredibly high. When you compound that with no access to healthcare, no shelter, Kids will start succumbing to, and they already are, communicable diseases. We see diarrheal diseases on the increase. We see kids turning up to the health facilities that can't function, but we don't know if they've got hepatitis. We see them with jaundice, and we see already many families resorting to negative coping mechanisms like eating one meal a day if they're lucky. What are some of the the stories that you're hearing from Gaza? And and I hear that particularly in the north of Gaza, things are are particularly harrowing. What, What is this like for individual families, for children, for mothers with babies? Well, I can tell you the story of one of my own team members that was in the north of Gaza until Christmas Day last year when we managed to get him down to the south. 
they reported his family and families around them that were hunting animals in the street to try and find whatever food they have. We have reports of families trying to eat animal fodder. Again, young kids, especially those under five, we know how critical it is that the early years investment, the early childhood development where sufficient nutrition and care really impacts future cognitive development, physical growth. We are now placing the entire population of children in Gaza at risk for having any sort of future, be it in physical health, in cognitive ability, but even the ability to survive in the next couple of months. And and how does this hunger crisis in Gaza compare to other food security crises in recent history? Unfortunately, the situation in Gaza now is entirely man-made. You have a situation where 85% of the population is displaced. But unlike other crises where humanitarians can work, we can deliver, this is not the case in Gaza. There is absolutely no adherence to international humanitarian law, which means that we can't do our jobs. We can't deliver assistance. We don't have access to all of Gaza. We're not allowed to bring in the goods that we need to. We're not allowed to bring in the quantities that we need to. And we're not allowed to bring in people to actually do the work. And not only that, the conditions are still getting worse. There's constant airstrikes and fighting. And humanitarians cannot deliver when there is active fighting. And the hundreds of humanitarians that have been killed is testament to the fact that we just cannot do our jobs. Is the paused funding of UNRWA, the United Nations aid agency in Gaza, over allegations some of its workers engaged in the October 7 attacks, having an impact now on the ground? Absolutely. Um, And I want to make clear as well, the allegations are significant and any allegations of of the abhorrent acts of October 7 has to be taken seriously and investigated. And they're being done so by UNRWA. The reality is that without UNRWA, there cannot be any humanitarian delivery. UNRWA is the only agency in Gaza that has the scale, the reach and the scope to reach all the civilians in need. Prior October 7, UNRWA was running 50% of the schools. Hundreds and thousands of the civilians which are now displaced are living in UNRWA schools. There are 13,000 staff members of UNRWA, far beyond the cumulative total of every other agency in Gaza right now. Without UNRWA, we will not be able to reach the people most in need. We would not be able to deliver assistance and we would not be able to keep the 2.3 million civilians in Gaza alive right now. Jason Lee, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed. Thank you. And Jason Lee is Country Director for Save the Children in the Occupied Palestinian Territory. He was speaking to us from Ramallah. The Victorian Premier has been touring the fire zone in the foothills of the Grampians as residents return home to assess the damage. The current estimate is that 25 homes and three businesses have been destroyed but that number could still rise. Hundreds of volunteer firefighters answered the call when their communities needed them, but there are concerns more broadly that the workforce is getting older and young people around the country aren't stepping up to take their place. Angus Randall reports. Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen comforts residents in Dadswell Bridge and Pomonal in the state's west, shaken by fires that swept through on Tuesday. It's a beautiful day here in the in the Wimmera district, but we can see too that fire suppression work is continuing out here on the on the fire ground as there is some warmer weather coming in the in the coming days. But certainly right now, the fire threat has 
eased. The town of Pomonal was hit hardest by the fires that sparked along the eastern edge of the Grampians. Many residents are still waiting for the all-clear to return. Some will be coming back to a burnt-out shell of their former home. Pomonal resident Neil McCumber fled to the nearby town of Stall on Tuesday. He's heard his house is safe. We're not allowed back because, well, there's still people, you know, mopping up. Could be heavy vehicles on the road, could be smoke still. They don't know if there's trees that are unsafe. So, yes, uh, we're not allowed back. And, of course, we don't want to be in there when, when these fire trucks are whizzing around and trying to do their work and we're in the way. When the call went out for help during Tuesday's catastrophic fire conditions, hundreds of volunteer firefighters jumped into action. But as extreme weather sees emergency workers needed more and more, there are concerns Australia's first responders are ageing and not enough young people are joining up. Jerry Burnage is the commander of Ballina SES in northeast New South Wales. He joined 40 years ago. It's very hard to get young people involved because it's so hard for them these days. Um, we, we are lucky in Ballina. We have had and we do have a number of uh, young people come in. We encourage the young ones. If you can get some young ones in, it encourages others. But, you know, young people got to realise it helps them in their careers. It's good on their resumes for jobs that they do volunteering and they have so many good skills. Last year, there were just over 188,000 volunteer fire personnel available around the nation. But a decade ago, there was 222,000, a significant drop in numbers. John Bale is the co-founder of Fortum, which offers mental health support services to first responders. He says the cost of living is hurting all volunteer organisations. It's very hard to find time to be able to be a volunteer if you're in a paid employee role and any spare time you have is probably going to be spent on other things besides volunteering, especially with a cost of living crisis. That might be picking up another job or another role that can support you and your family. So volunteering on the whole is dropping, not just with inside volunteer fire and emergency services, but across the country. And the increasing likelihood of being sent to a major natural disaster is a turnoff. With climate change, there's little doubt that if you become a volunteer firefighter or SES member or any other volunteer role, it's very likely that you're going to be included in a, quote, one in 100 year event, regardless of where you are in our country. In Victoria, thousands are still without power after Tuesday's storms. The Australian energy market operator says it could take weeks to restore electricity to some homes. Angus Randall there. Tasmania's election is underway in just a few weeks' time. Voters across the state's five electorates will have their say at the ballot box. The Northern Electorate of Bass will play a key role in determining whether the next government is formed by the Liberal or the Labor Party. The Liberal Party enjoyed significant success in Bass back in 2021, but as reporter Alexandra Humphreys explains, the mood has changed since then. Tasmania's Dorset Council is situated in the state's northeast. It's a rural part of the Bass electorate. The former mayor, Greg Howard, says locals there are cutting back to cope with financial pressures. You know, the cost of groceries has just um, just gone through the roof and I've just noticed that, you know, when you go to the supermarket, you know, shopping baskets are not as full as they used to be. The Dorset Council is a traditionally heartland area for the Liberal Party. But last year, the Rockcliffe government suspended the local council and its councillors. Greg Howard was also the president of the Liberals' North East branch. The branch dissolved last year in protest. 
I think the problem for electors um, going into this election is absolute lack of quality candidates um, in both the Labor and Liberal parties. Election analyst Dr Kevin Bonham says if a large number of voters from that area shift allegiances, that could have a big impact. If you get someone running as some kind of conservative breakaway candidate, like a Nationals candidate or a conservative independent or something like that, they, they could do a lot of damage to the Liberal vote in those uh, booths. Bass takes in the city of Launceston and its surrounds. At the 2021 state election, then-Premier Peter Gutwin was the headline act. A popular pandemic premier, he personally attracted more than 40% of the vote. Now he's gone, those votes are up for grabs. It seems that the Liberals have a very severe weakening of their personal vote appeal on their ticket. They, they seem to have a lack of firepower at the moment, but we have to see who they uh, may announce. Due to Tasmania's multi-member electorate system, Bass voters will elect seven MPs to represent them, two more than at the last election due to an expansion of the state's parliament. At the last election, Bass voters elected three Liberals and two Labor MPs. One of those Liberals, Lara Alexander, became an independent partway through the term. Kevin Bonham says the Liberal Party would need to win four seats this time to win majority government. Labor will be looking for three, but would need a significant swing to win them. Minor parties like the Greens and Jackie Lambie Network are also in the mix, as is Lara Alexander. It would seem likely that, that one at least would... Out of out of all that lot would would get a seat, but none of them are really lock-ins. Alina Bain is the chief executive of the Launceston Chamber of Commerce. She's hoping the major parties will commit to big projects that will help get the local economy moving. In our view, at the chamber, there are a large number of opportunities which are not yet realised. Bass voters have in the past shifted support for major parties based on cost of living pressures. According to Stephen Brown from the City Mission, those pressures are weighing heavily right now. I, th I think um, it will be an issue in Bass, the, the cost of living um, issues, and exacerbated by the housing issue. High stakes in Bass for determining Tasmania's next government. Alexandra Humphreys there. Well, that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, we hope you have a good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. You've probably been seeing a fair bit of Taylor Swift's name this week. Yes, she's in Melbourne and she was at the Super Bowl. But perhaps more intriguing is her role in the upcoming US election. Today we look at why Trump's supporters are so willing to believe conspiracy theories that she's in cahoots with the White House. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.